So why should we trust the Bible? And what do we do when we run into difficult, even disturbing passages of Scripture? We'll look into these questions this week on Exploring the Faith. I'm Kurt Parton, and this is Exploring the Faith, where we examine any question or issue that helps us be more faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. We want to be growing always closer to God to more deeply understand the life he's brought us into, to help and encourage our fellow believers, and to meaningfully engage the culture around us. Welcome to the discussion. If I were to ask you, why do you believe the Bible? Some of you might respond by sharing your personal experiences, how the Holy Spirit confirmed the truth of God's Word within your spirit. You might describe how He helped you to just know that the Scriptures are the infallible Word of God. And I have no interest in challenging this kind of assurance, because I know the Spirit does work like this in our hearts and minds. But is this the only reason for trusting the Bible? Imagine if you were talking with a Mormon who accepts the Book of Mormon as divine scripture, and he asks you why you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so you share your Spirit-given assurance. And he responds by telling you about how he prayed to God to let him know if the Book of Mormon was really true, and how he felt an assurance from God that the Book of Mormon was indeed the Word of God. What now? Do your spiritual experiences cancel out each other? Are both conclusions somehow true, even though they contradict each other? It seems we need some objective criteria in seeking to determine the validity of the Bible. This might seem strange to some of you, but when establishing the authority of Scripture in our lives as believers, I don't begin with the Bible itself. I begin with Jesus. The historic Christian faith is based on the person of Jesus Christ. And even without an inerrant or error-free Bible, we can still have complete faith in Christ. For instance, we have very convincing historical evidence confirming not only the existence of Jesus, but also the historical events of his ministry, including both his teaching and miracles, his crucifixion, his burial, and physical resurrection. We did a podcast series on this a couple of months ago. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus was at the heart of the Christian faith from the beginning, and we know historically that the earliest Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Even scholars who don't personally believe in Jesus still accept the New Testament Gospels as generally reliable historical sources. So I would encourage you to be clear about what you believe about Jesus before tackling the exact nature of Scripture. We don't need a divinely inspired Bible to believe in Jesus. And, as odd as this might sound to some of you, I don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible. I believe in the Bible because of Jesus. Okay, some of you might be thinking, so how does that work? Well, if we accept the New Testament Gospels as generally historically reliable, as, again, most scholars do, And if we're convinced by the historical evidence concerning who Jesus was and what he did, and if we want to follow Jesus and pattern our lives after him, 
then what Jesus believed and taught about the scriptures becomes incredibly important. And we get a very clear picture of his views about scripture on the pages of the New Testament Gospels. It doesn't take long in a reading of the historical accounts in the Gospels before we see how Jesus consistently relied on and appealed to the Scriptures. When he was repeatedly tempted by Satan in the wilderness, each time he responds with the words of Scripture. When Satan tells him to make bread out of stones, Jesus immediately begins with, No, the Scriptures say... Then Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, but Jesus responds by insisting the scriptures also say. And then to the final temptation, Jesus replies, get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say. Each time he relies on scripture to determine what is true and right and what is not. We see this appeal to the authority of scripture all through the Gospels. In his frequent challenge to the people, have you not read in the scriptures? When Jesus is questioned by the Sadducees in Matthew 22, he responds by telling them, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. He goes on to quote a specific passage of scripture and then uses this passage to teach definitively about the resurrection from the dead and the nature of God. In Matthew 15, Jesus challenges an unbiblical practice of the Pharisees, saying, you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. In other words, Jesus uses the scriptures to determine the validity of someone's spiritual practice. In the 10th chapter of John, Jesus quotes another passage of scripture, emphasizes a single specific word, and then insists that the scriptures cannot be altered. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he spoke to two disciples who didn't realize who he was. Finally, Jesus lovingly rebuked their hopelessness. You foolish people! You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. You can find this in the 24th chapter of Luke. Over and over again, we see the place of absolute trustworthiness and authority the scriptures held in the life and ministry of Jesus. One could be excused for describing Jesus' view of the scriptures as evangelical. Seems apparent that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we also must follow him in his devotion to the scriptures. In Matthew 10, and in parallel passages, Jesus chooses 12 of his followers to be his apostles. Later, Paul and James are also described as apostles of Christ. What does it mean to be an apostle? One aspect of their ministry is fairly common to us today. We're very familiar with someone representing and speaking for another person or group, and even exercising authority in their name. If a United States ambassador or the Secretary of State speaks to a foreign government in an official capacity, everyone understands they speak with the authority of the United States president. This is what the apostles were. They were official, personally commissioned representatives of Jesus Christ. They taught and wrote his words with his authority. 
This is intrinsic to the role of the apostle, and it was universally understood in the first century church. This is why, in their letters, both Paul and Peter identify themselves as apostles of Christ. This is why they write with authority, instructing the believers regarding salvation and the Christian life. This is why Paul could remind the Corinthians that what he wrote was a command from the Lord himself. This is why he explains in Ephesians 3 how God was revealing his eternal plan through his apostles and prophets. This is why they could, if necessary, even make demands in the name of Christ. This is why, though Paul sought to lead in humility and gentleness, he makes clear that he will exercise his apostolic authority for the sake of the local church. This is why the apostles could decisively and authoritatively correct false teaching. For a clear example of this, you can see the entire letter to the Galatians. And this is why they could praise the Thessalonians with these words, Therefore we never stop thanking God that when you received His message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very Word of God, which of course it is. And this Word continues to work in you who believe. And the Thessalonians weren't alone in this. From the very beginning, the followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Years later, Peter would write this about the letters of Paul. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. Did you notice how Peter includes Paul's letters with other parts of Scripture? The earliest believers universally followed this devotion to an adherence of these apostolic writings, viewing them as divinely inspired and infallible Scripture. The Old Testament is filled with strong claims about its own authority. But let's look at two claims from the New Testament. The first is from 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21. And it says this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And the second is from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we have to believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. We don't want to return to the circular reasoning we discussed a few weeks ago. But the Bible does make some very strong claims about itself. And these claims challenge us, just as many of the things Jesus said about himself challenge us. Remember, Jesus continually put the focus on himself. He said many things to the people that only God has the authority to say. And he called the people to place their faith in him for their eternal salvation. As C.S. Lewis pointed out long ago, a man who said these kinds of things, if they weren't true, would not be a good human teacher. 
He would either suffer from some controlling delusion that gave him grandiose but false ideas about himself, or he would be an evil, manipulative con man. You have to decide, was Jesus a lunatic? Was he a liar? Or is he the Lord? These claims that the Bible makes about itself demand of us another important choice. Is the Bible what it claims to be or not? If these claims are wrong, they're either the overblown fantasies of well-intentioned but self-deluded fanatics or the diabolical rantings of first-century charlatans. We talked last week about the idea that the scriptures are not truly the inspired, inerrant word of God, but that they're still somehow spiritually beneficial to us and can even be helpful for the church. That view can seem plausible by itself, but when we consider the claims the Bible makes for itself, that idea ultimately becomes incoherent and nonsensical. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the biblical authors have not left that option open to us. They did not intend to. But if the scriptures are neither wide-eyed fairy tales nor evil spiritual manipulation, then that leaves us with the option they are what they claim to be, the Word of God. One important thing we haven't talked about is the internal consistency of the Bible. Imagine trying to compile writings on a single subject, with all the writings coming from a 100-year span all by authors who were native English speakers and who were educated at, say, Oxford. If we were to collect what these authors produced, would anyone mistake these writings for the work of a single author? Would these works even fit well within a single compilation? The Bible was written in three different languages, on three different continents, over a period of 1,500 years, by more than 40 authors of incredibly varying educational, social, and cultural backgrounds. And yet it uncannily seems to be the product of a single, unifying mind. And this perception isn't diminished by in-depth study. No, the more one digs below the surface in the scriptural texts, the more the cohesive nature of scripture is hard to deny. Though there were many human authors responsible for the biblical books, it's difficult to escape the guiding hand of a divine author who stands behind the whole. The more one studies the Bible, the more unavoidable the conclusion that the author of Genesis is also the author of Revelation. But what about things in Scripture that do seem inconsistent? What about passages that appear to be problematic? How do we handle difficult passages in the Bible? I remember one young man in a study many years ago who had a question. I could tell he was reluctant to say anything, but I encouraged him that any sincere question was welcome. He seemed shocked at himself for actually expressing his doubt aloud, but he blurted out anyway, I just don't understand how this kind of verse can be the Word of God. The passage that was troubling him was Psalm 137, 8-9. Here's what it says. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. The first thing I said in response was that I would be troubled by anyone who didn't find this passage disturbing. And I could immediately see the relief on his face. 
He later explained that he was afraid we would think he was some kind of heretic or atheist because he dared to even wonder about a particular verse of Scripture. We went on to discuss this passage in its context, but before I share more with you about this specific case, I want to step back and look at this more general question. What do we do when we run across a passage of Scripture that really troubles us or even makes us doubt? How do we handle it when it seems the Bible might be wrong? When facing such a problem, it's easy to fall into one of two extremes. We can just rely on blind, irrational faith, insisting that if the Bible says it, no matter how illogical or silly it sounds, then it's true. The problem with this approach is that we may be holding sacred our own mistaken idea of what the scriptures are saying, not what the Bible actually communicates. But then, at the slightest hint the scriptures might be in error, we could also simply reject the Bible as inspired or infallible. We can assume that all the critics are right and the Bible is a merely human book describing the beliefs of people in the distant past. The problem with doing this is that the Bible has a long track record of refuting its critics. If we too easily reject the Bible, we might find ourselves rejecting the very Word of God. So what do we do when we're faced with a challenging passage of Scripture? I want to recommend working through four possible steps that can prove helpful. First, pray. It often goes without saying, but the first step in studying the Bible, especially when struggling with something difficult to understand, should always be to pray. If the Bible was written through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we need the illumination of the same Spirit to properly interpret the Scriptures. We need to humbly ask God to help us understand the heart of what He's telling us in His Word. Second, compare translations. It's easy for us to get the wrong understanding of a Scripture passage because of an unclear translation. This is especially true of older translations that use more archaic English. I love the King James Version. I grew up with it. It was the only Bible I knew for years, and there's a real beauty and majesty to it. But I can't tell you how many times people have come to me with a passage they don't understand in the King James Version. And then when I show them the passage in another, more clear translation, the response is usually, oh, that's what this means. For instance, many people have been confused by Jesus' desire to suffer the little children in Matthew 19, 14. Wondering why Jesus wanted children to suffer, not realizing that today this would be expressed as allow the little children to come to me, or don't prevent the little children from coming to me. So if you're reading something that doesn't make sense, try reading it in a different translation. Many times reading the same passage in different words can help you better understand what the passage is actually saying. Third, check the notes. Earlier Christians would tell us, check the manuscripts. That sounds overly technical and even intimidating to many ordinary Christians today. Thankfully, we can all check the manuscripts. All it takes is reading the very helpful notes the translators have provided for us in our Bibles. If you check the little footnotes in your Bible, you'll see a few of them that say something like, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain this passage. These notes refer to verses that the vast majority of biblical scholars agree were accidentally added to the text centuries after it was originally written. 
we now know these passages should not be included as Scripture. Here's an example from John 5.4. For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water, and the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. This was apparently someone's attempt to explain why the people were trying so hard to get into the pool. At first, this explanation was written in the margin, but it eventually became incorporated into the text itself. But, by comparing all the thousands of manuscripts we have available, textual scholars can ascertain the original reading and the spurious edition, and even determine the general time frame when it was added. So we don't have to accept this odd and superstitious reading as a genuine part of John's Gospel. Another example is the reference to handling snakes in Mark 16:18. Here again, practically all biblical scholars agree that this section of Mark was not part of the original. So after making sure you understand the translation of a difficult passage, check for notes to make sure it was genuinely part of the original text. Anything that was added is likely to be problematic like snake handling. But be careful, just because a text is difficult doesn't mean it's not part of the original. The fourth step, work to truly understand the passage. If you've prayed, if you've verified that the translation actually means what it seems to mean, and if there are no notes in your Bible indicating the passage isn't authentic, And it's time to push up your sleeves and do the work necessary to properly understand the passage. We'll spend some time in some future episodes breaking down how to do that for different kinds of scripture passages. While the essentials of the gospel are crystal clear in scripture, not everything is as easy to immediately grasp. Speaking of Paul's letters to the churches, Peter wrote that some of his comments are hard to understand. In passages such as John 6, we see Jesus teaching things to the people that were difficult to hear and accept. Jesus knew that many of the people were following him for superficial reasons, not because they understood the spiritual significance of what he said and did. So he would occasionally teach hard truths to distinguish between those who had ears to hear and those who weren't willing to truly hear. We need to not reject a passage right away just because it disturbs or confuses us. We first need to make sure we accurately understand the passage. So, in the passage we began with, Psalm 137, 8-9, what's the context? Who is speaking? I'll give you a clue. It's not God. The author is one of the refugees from conquered, destroyed Jerusalem. He's a Jew who now lives in the land of his conquerors, Babylon. He's overwrought with what has befallen his people and his homeland, and he longs for vengeance against the people of Babylon. He cries out for them to experience the same horrific fate that they've perpetrated upon his people. The psalm is very expressive and even moving in places, but it doesn't express the heart of God. It dramatically expresses the heart of these devastated Jewish refugees. Once we've done the work to understand the passage in context, it still disturbs us, but we don't have to accept it as describing the heart of God. We don't want to fall back on a blind, subjective faith in Scripture. On the other hand, we need to realize how often the Bible has proven itself accurate against the attacks of the critics. A classic example concerns the existence of the Hittites. 
The Old Testament refers many times to these people, portraying them as a major power and sometimes foe of Israel. Not long ago, if you had suggested in a secular university that this biblical portrayal of the Hittites was historically relevant, you would have been laughed out of class. Everyone knew the Hittites were a biblical myth, or at the very most, a minor, insignificant local tribe. That is, until a few decades ago, when archaeologists began uncovering confirmation of the Hittite empire. As it turns out, these Hittites had a rich, long-standing culture They were dominant over a widespread territory, the other major powers of the region considered them a threat, and they existed during the same time frame the Bible describes. Score one for scripture. This same kind of scenario has played out again and again. Many times the Bible has proven itself to be far more accurate than its critics. This doesn't mean we should just assume it can never be wrong, especially in our interaction with skeptics and unbelievers. But it does mean that none of us should too quickly dismiss the claims of Scripture because of the current consensus of skeptical critics. We need to resist the temptation of a knee-jerk reaction, either in support of a particular reading of the Bible or in opposition to it. Especially for those who are followers of Christ, we must do what it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive His approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly explains the word of truth. But what about those who don't accept biblical inerrancy, the belief that the Bible is free from error in everything it teaches? What about the specific challenges that they throw out against this idea of biblical inerrancy? We'll examine the most common challenges to biblical inerrancy in our next episode. Join us next week as we continue exploring the faith. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This will help others find us. You can find a transcript of this episode along with any show notes at exploringthefaith.com. Feel free to post a comment and join the discussion. We also welcome any questions or issues that you'd like us to explore. You can submit these at exploringthefaith.com. Exploring the Faith is sponsored by The Orchard, a Jesus-following church that meets in Rancho Cordova, California, and also in weekly interactive online studies. This is my home church where I'm blessed to serve as teaching pastor. You can find out more about The Orchard at orchardonline.org.